0: Good morning and welcome to The Morning Fix. I'm Julie Dye and I'm here with Amy Shepard, my co-host. Today, Dr. Joseph Ravenel is joining us. He is a leading researcher on how community-based approaches can narrow the healthcare disparities gap. He's been a principal investigator of multiple NIH and CDC grant-funded clinical trials to improve colon cancer screening and cardiovascular disease prevention among black men in urban settings. Dr. Ravenel is also Director of Cancer Prevention Navigation at Pearl Mutter Cancer Center at NYU Langone Health. He has almost 100 publications under his name, as well as a very popular TED Talk, which has received over 1 million views.
1: Welcome to the show, Dr. Ravenel. Thank you. Dr. Revanel, you have quite an impressive background with multiple professor positions, presentations, and publications. I think we counted well over a hundred. Our listeners love hearing about success stories. Please tell us about yours. Um, it, it was really inspiring.
2: Oh well, it's it's great to be here with you, Amy. So I love telling my 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 story. I am the son of two ministers. Uh, I grew up in. Central New Jersey and uh, uh, the my, my upbringing in in my in my parents church actually uh, was a ended up having a big impact on me and my ultimate uh, uh, career, uh, watching my parents uh, really put others first and uh, and prioritize service. Uh, that's really uh, all that I ever wanted to do. Um, and medicine seemed like a great way for me to uh, provide service. Uh, and so I knew early on that I uh, was probably not likely to follow my parents' footsteps in the uh, pulpit. And so, uh, and so medicine seemed like the next best uh, ministry. And so I, I went to, to college um, knowing that, that I wanted to be a, a doctor. Uh, and so I went to, uh, went to Amherst College and then went to the University of Chicago Uh, Pritzker School of of Medicine. Uh, I chose to do a a residency in internal medicine, specifically uh, primary care. And uh, on the way to making the decision to be a a primary care doctor, uh, I had a very uh, influential and formative experience. uh, The summer after my first year of medical school, uh, when I met uh, and incredible doctor and uh, mentor uh, who essentially introduced me to the notion of uh, research and more broadly to uh, the the field of black men's health. Uh, when I met him, he had just come back from uh, from the Harvard School of Public Health. And he really wanted to try to understand why black men died disproportionately from what we call primary care sensitive conditions, and so those are the the conditions that you hear about, like high blood pressure, uh, diabetes, um, high cholesterol, uh, HIV, certain certain cancers. Many uh, and and so those are conditions that can be uh, diagnosed and treated uh, often in the uh, primary care setting. Uh, but one of the uh, challenges uh, that we see when it comes to uh, health. Inequities is that uh, black men and other uh, men of uh, color often underutilize uh, and uh, engage less with primary health care for a number of uh, reasons that uh, that I'm sure we'll probably get into later in the uh, in the uh, interview. Uh, but uh, uh, I uh, we basically wanted to take that opportunity uh, to learn more about what keeps black men from utilizing. Uh, uh, primary health care. And so the summer after my first uh, first year in uh, medical school, I embarked on my first uh, research study uh, where myself, um, my my mentor, uh, his name is Dr. Eric, Eric Whitaker, uh, myself, Dr. Whitaker and two other uh, medical students, we uh, went to, uh, we went around uh, Chicago essentially finding uh, black men from the uh, incredibly diverse spectrum of uh, Black men. And we talked to about um, 120 of them really trying to understand uh, their views on on health and uh, what some of the barriers uh, are that they encounter in trying to uh, access healthcare. Uh, and so we were able to, after speaking uh, with these men, able to uh, look at all of our qualitative data and uh, try to uh, see if there were any common themes uh, among the uh, 120 men that we uh, spoke with. And um, there were a couple of themes that really uh, that, that, that really jumped out. One was that uh, the men that we spoke with had a very broad view of health that went beyond having a good blood pressure and not being overweight, and you know, having a good blood sugar. But it also included um, things like having a job. Uh, it included things like being able to walk safely around one's neighborhood, being able to take care uh, of, of one's children and to be able to impart lessons to them, to be able to, to safely get to know your uh, neighbors. Um, and so we heard a lot about what we now call the social determinants of uh, health, but uh, really, uh, those, those, those factors were were really central uh, to how these men thought about health. We also learned that many of the barriers that they faced uh, were related to both uh, access or, or lack of access, also uh, medical mistrust, um, both from uh, what they had heard about uh, um, in, in terms of uh, the uh, Tuskegee study, for instance, uh, and other uh, other uh, historical events that uh, that the men that we spoke with heard about, but also they drew from their own uh, ex- experiences uh, with the healthcare system, which were not always uh, 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 positive. Uh, and so we basically, uh, you know, looked at at what we found and were able to put together uh, some some key findings. That we were later able to present to the Chicago city government, and uh, and what came out of that was by the time I graduated from uh, medical school, uh, Project Brotherhood uh, had had been formed, uh, and Project Brotherhood was a uh, was a clinic on the south side of Chicago that operated out of one of the Cook County uh, Cook County Hospital of uh, uh, primary care clinics. And uh, we were able to uh, essentially implement many of the lessons and findings from our study in developing that uh, clinic. And some of those things included, you know, having, uh, uh, we wanted to make sure that there were, were, were black doctors available to, to see the uh, patients. We wanted to make sure that, uh, that there were evening hours so that the men didn't have to have to take off of, of uh, work. We also wanted to make sure that we address some of these social concerns, uh, including having things like parenting classes, jo- job training classes, and one of the things that we also had on site, uh, really speaking to this broader notion of health, was we had a barber on site who would who would actually cut hair uh, and offer free haircuts to to the men who came in to get uh, medical services. Um, and so uh, I really got got um, smitten uh, by the research bug, seeing that research uh, could actually result in uh, in solutions for a much broader audience than just the patient sitting in uh, front of me. Uh, and so, uh, you know that that formative uh, e- uh, experience with Dr. Whitaker uh, really laid the groundwork for, uh, for my career in uh, in uh, research, that uh, that still does focus on Black men's health and specifically uh, health health uh, equity.
0: I love it. I love hearing about Project Brotherhood and you know how you brought together a variety of services. Right, it wasn't just the healthcare services, but other social services that were you know important in that community. Can you tell us about any of the you know key metrics or wins that came out of this program, and any you know anything maybe that you learned from it that you've you know done differently as you've gone through your career um, in developing these kind of kind of models?
2: Yeah. so uh, I think uh, I think one of the key metrics is the fact that uh, the is that Project Brotherhood is still uh, is still alive and uh, well. Uh, the fact that it is still providing service, uh, I think, is an incredible uh, testament to to the impact of this uh, of this uh, model. Um, things that have come come out uh, of this model uh, include my later work in in uh, barbershops, and so uh, to to continue with with the uh, story. Um, so after um, after uh, medical school, I I started my uh, residency at University of uh, Pennsylvania, and as I was nearing uh, the end of my uh, uh, the end of my uh, residency, I was introduced to someone who actually learned about the work that we were doing in uh, Chicago, and he uh, was a, a cardiologist who noticed uh, that there was a disproportionate burden of of, uh, of heart disease uh, among young black men in Dallas, Texas. Uh, and as a cardiologist, he was just growing very weary of seeing all of these young black men uh, in his uh, uh, cardiac uh, intensive care unit. He wanted to do something uh, about it. And so uh, he learned about the work that was happening in uh, Chicago uh, and uh, he actually had uh, the idea to kind of flip uh, what we were doing in Project Brotherhood, flip that idea on its uh, head. And so, rather than bring a barber to the clinical setting, uh, he thought, "Well, how about if we bring uh, if we bring blood pressure measurement uh, and 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 clinical services out to the to the uh, barber shop?" Uh, and uh, and that's really how. Uh, how the 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 barbershop the hypertension barbershop projects uh, were uh, born, and it turns out that uh, and so that that cardiologist that I met uh, was Dr. Ron Victor, uh, still one of my most influential mentors, who unfortunately unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago, uh, way way too soon. Uh, but um, but this idea of essentially bringing blood pressure measurement out to the barbershops actually harkens back to the 1960s uh when uh when incredible medical pioneers in the black community actually started to measure blood pressure in the community and to take it out of purely clinical settings as a way to address the real epidemic of hypertension uh back in in the in the in the late 1960s um i was uh years ago uh you know i was listening to um, an incredible uh, uh, hypertension specialist and cardiologist, Dr. Uh, Eli Saunders, uh, who, uh, who told me that the stroke rate among black men in the 1960s was about 900 times higher than it was in uh, white men, just an absolutely staggering figure. Uh, but it really kind of highlighted the, um, the, the critical need uh, for us to figure out a way to increase awareness of high blood pressure uh, as well as to do something about it. And so uh, Black doctors and uh, and uh, nurses, they basically uh, took matters into their own hands. And once the American Medical Association demedicalized the measurement of uh, blood pressure, uh, essentially making it okay to, to measure blood pressure outside of a, a clinical setting, uh, that was part of a whole... Uh, effort to bring blood pressure measurement out into uh, communities, and uh, and so uh, black black leaders, uh, um, uh, medical leaders, as well as other uh, community leaders, really kind of you know took that charge to uh, heart, and uh, and so they started measuring blood pressure in churches, started measuring blood pressure in barbershops, in uh, community centers, all to raise awareness of uh, hypertension and to get more. Uh, young black men and women into treatment to avoid the awful consequences of stroke, heart attack, uh, end-stage kidney disease, peripheral artery disease, and uh, and so many and and, and other aspects of uh, cardiovascular disease that disproportionately impact um, uh, black people. So um, so so this uh, again. Um, the experience uh, of working with Dr. Whitaker and Project Brotherhood led to the um, the, the, the work that I uh, would do subsequently and still do today.
1: Dr. Ravenel, I really enjoyed researching your background and your work in preparation for uh, this interview. And um, you, you, you have some impressive presentations, including your TED Talk and your talk at the Biden Cancer Summit. Um, I was fascinated by the barbershop program for African-American men and, and how it's helped disseminate information about colon cancer screenings and other testing, uh, other, other health testing. Talk a little bit about why you think that was the case. Was was there a social component? I just want to delve into that a little bit more.
2: Absolutely. So the the barbershop in Black communities really has historical Significance. Uh, the uh, going back to the days of uh, slavery and then the days of of uh, Jim Crow, uh, barbers really have had a role as uh, community leaders, uh, as trusted um, individuals, uh, particularly among men. Um, and you know, if you can just think for a moment of the experience of, of getting your hair cut or getting your hair done, you know, that's somewhat of an intimate uh, e- e- experience that, uh, you know, that often takes a, a long time. And there's plenty of time um, for conversation and plenty of time for the customer and the barber to get to know each other, even in one single uh, encounter. And so if you consider, uh, that uh, that black men, on average, uh, go to their barbers uh, one to two times per month, right? So now we're talking, you know, thirty to 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 sixty minutes once or twice a a month. That far exceeds the time that any one person spends with their doctor, um, and so. Uh, we thought that that was uh, a, a perfect opportunity um, to align with, to disseminate health information. So there is both the time, there's the opportunity, and then there is the trust uh, that the barber has, but also that uh, the trust that exists among the customers in the uh, barbershop. Um, I think back to when I first moved to uh, Dallas, Texas, I had... Finally finished all of my uh, medical training, um, and uh, and my uh, we we had our uh, first son, and so uh, obviously we you know we were very busy trying to figure out uh, you know life as new parents, and so uh, I was I was fortunate enough to get a six a.m. appointment uh, in this very popular barber shop in uh, Dallas, Texas. Every Saturday morning, and so uh, um, and so before our our son woke up, I would leave the house, go six a.m., go to the barbershop, and uh, believe it or not, I was not the only person there. There was a whole cohort of of men who were there, <laughs> and so and and so you can imagine me going there every two weeks, seeing the same group of men, getting to know those uh, barbers. We really we really developed quite a a friendship. And so, you know, once they learned that I was a a doctor, they would bring all of their questions to me. uh, And it was, and I always looked forward to that very, very much. Uh, And so I personally was able to experience uh, just what an opportunity and what a a kind of platform the barbershop can be for disseminating health uh, information. And so, you know, when you combine just <laughs> Which often doesn't exist in a in a usual uh, doctor's visit. When you consider trust, the fact that I you know had the opportunity to get to know these men uh, personally and as friends, even before they knew I was a a a, a doctor, and then just the just the repeat exposure. Right, my my persistence in being there every two weeks, uh, where they essentially knew that they could trust not only the fact that I was going to be there, but they could, but they could trust that I was going to keep whatever they were going to tell me, in in uh, confidence. And so all of those factors um, are what really make the barbershop a special place and uh, a really critical, uh, I think, uh, tool. For trying to address issues of equity in uh, black men, and so in Dallas, Texas, we were able to um, to show that we could train barbers to actually measure blood pressure very effectively, and to be able to counsel their customers about going to the doctor if their blood pressure was uh, high. And the whole and and the whole idea of the uh, model was that the men would be coming back every two weeks. Whether th- and it was completely unrelated to their health concern, they were coming back for their haircut. And so, you know, what what better thing to kind of latch on to, um, or what better thing to attach? Uh, Follow-up of blood pressure than getting a haircut because it's something that they were going to do, uh, going to do anyway. So we learned so many lessons. But you're absolutely right, Amy, that it's the social relationships, it is the trust, and it's the fact that uh, that 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 we are there. We have a presence, a repeated presence. It's not, you know, we're not, we're not just dipping in and dipping out. We are there, and I think that's what really helps to build that that uh, trust, which I think is so central to the success of this model.
0: It reminds me a lot of a, a model that I've seen in women's health um, in the Hispanic and Latinx communities, where you you empower other women to go into the homes you know, of women who, you know, may be um, predisposed to different health conditions, but it's, I believe it's called the Prima Sora model. And mm-hmm. so um, I've definitely seen, you know, some, some successful programs in the breast cancer space um, happen through that model. I'd love to hear from you, you know, any of the responses that you've received, you know, through the years uh, working through this Project Brotherhood or other, you know, um, uh, barbershop, and and community focused models, like what are what are the people saying? You know, are they happy you're there? Are you are they are they more willing to you know let somebody take their blood pressure in that barber shop than they would be you know by taking it themselves at home or in their in their doctor's office? Tell us about the reaction to the people that you're you're out there interacting with.
2: Absolutely, Julie. And so uh, I have heard countless stories about men who have come into the barbershop uh gotten their blood pressure measured had what we call a panic reading uh where you know the the systolic or the top number was 200 or higher uh even scarier w- when the bottom number is over a hundred or even over a hundred and twenty that's really scary, uh, for, for, for us as uh, doctors. Um, and, uh, we here have heard time and time again, that had we not been in the barbershop to be able to measure their blood pressure at that time, that they likely, you know, would not have gotten their blood pressure measure and could have had a terrible outcome like a stroke or, uh, or God forbid a, you know, a, a sudden fatal, uh, heart attack. Um, and so, uh, and, so, you know, I, I, I can't even tell you how many times I have heard that. And so uh, the response, the, the, the responses that we have heard from the community uh, really uh, are ones of uh, gratitude that we are there. And uh, I want to take this time to just, uh, to just acknowledge um, the people who really make uh, programs like this possible, and that is the barbers. The barbers are the ones who invite us into their professional homes. Um, they are the ones who give us uh, access to their customers, give us the uh, ability to be able to talk to them, to be able to teach, teach them, to be able to interact with them. And they have been true partners in this work and we could not uh, have been successful uh, without them. And, uh, and I want to tell you Julie and and, and Amy one th- one thing that really um, that, that really makes uh, my work meaningful is when we identify barbers who have high blood pressure who uh, who decide to participate in getting their blood pressure measured and then they get their blood pressure uh, uh, managed, they get it under control and then they serve as ambassadors to then get their customers, to get their blood pressure measured and to go follow up uh, 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 with their doctors, and so uh, we have we have gotten overwhelmingly positive uh, re- re- responses from the communities, and I really do believe that it's not only what we're doing, but it's the persistence and the consistency with which we uh, do it. So, um, so thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to to shout out um, the incredible barbers that we work with.
1: Oh uh, well, our pleasure. This has been a, a, a fantastic interview and conversation. We've we've really enjoyed learning so much. We can't wait to air this one, Dr. Revenal. and um, and thank you for sharing your stories. They'll they'll certainly help so many, and and that's why we do what we do. I wanted to switch gears just a little bit and talk about the incredible work that you've done at the NYU Langone. Um, health system and most recently, we've noticed that you've advocated for COVID vaccinations um, among all communities. Have you seen a disparity in uh, vaccination rates and um, amongst various communities and have they improved?
2: So uh, we definitely have seen um, disparities in uptake of COVID vaccination uh seeing differences in rates of vaccine hesitancy uh but i am happy to report that uh that uh recently it does look like the communities of uh, color um you know uh, and specifically black and latinx uh populations uh when we uh so the uh cdc actually tracks uh various metrics of covid uh vaccination. And uh, one of the things that they track is looking at who uh, who has been most recently vaccinated, uh, you know, in in the last uh, several weeks. And uh, what we're seeing is that um, a a higher percentage uh, of um, of of Black and Latinx uh, people comprise that group of, of more recently vaccinated um, than uh, than uh, other groups. And so while we definitely saw a lag at the uh, beginning and that was multifactorial, right? It was certainly uh, vaccine hesitancy was a uh, part of it. but if we you know if we think back to when the vaccine was being rolled out, there were certainly uh, access issues and there was uh, there was uh, undoubtedly, differential access where uh, communities of of uh, color were more likely to have less access to the uh, vaccine. But now uh, it, uh, access is actually not a a, a problem at all. Um, and so uh, but but I think that we are seeing the the vaccine hesitancy. We're starting to see that uh, turn around and uh, uh i have several colleagues who do a lot of work in this space and i i i heard a term uh that i like a little bit better than vaccine hesitancy and it was vaccine deliberation uh and so you know most most normal people have some hesitation about new technology um and not, not all of us are are early uh, adopters who who you know who go out and get the latest iPhone, um, but some of us really uh, deliberate. We, you know, we look at consumer reports, we look at you know uh, look at different uh, reviews to really decide is a new technology for us. And uh, and I believe that uh, was was the uh, case for many when the vaccine was first uh, rolled out. But I think you know now that literally hundreds of millions of of doses have been safely given. Um, and the vaccine has been shown to be not only incredibly effective, but uh, but one of uh, the safest vaccines uh, that uh, that has ever been uh, developed. Um, I think more people are uh, seeing that. I think you know now there's been time for uh, testimonials from from family, from uh, friends, um, you know, and uh, and so I, I think you know all a a combination of those things uh, ha, uh, has. Uh, has really helped to to turn the 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 uh, tide uh, to uh, to get to a place closer to uh, equity when it comes to uh, when it comes to COVID uh, vaccinations. We're still not not uh, exactly where we need to be. Uh, this the latest CDC data uh, shows that uh, when we look at the percentage of the population uh, uh, who has who has had at least two doses of the uh, vaccine, um, for uh, for some uh, minoritized groups, uh, um, that that proportion is not quite um, uh, uh, representative. For instance, uh, if we look at the percentage of all those all of of all of those people who have received two doses of the vaccine, about ten percent of those are uh, uh, are those who self-identify as uh, Black. We know that self-identified uh, uh, Black people make up about 12% of the general uh, population. And so we're, we're, we're getting close, uh, but, but there's still work to do uh, to not only ensure that, that people have at least um, two doses of the vaccine, but of course with uh, Omicron, um, we, uh, we know that getting, uh, getting a third shot or a booster is critically important uh, and uh, and we're still seeing that the majority of people who have received the uh, booster um, are, are are white Americans and we still have work to do in our uh, black and, and uh, Latinx uh, Americans.
0: At least we have some good news to report, okay. right? That things are yes. moving in, in the right direction, it sounds like. Yes. Um, you know, and I would also say that of the few silver linings that we have seen result from this pandemic, one of them is that, you know, as healthcare marketers, we are much more keenly aware than we ever were before about the disparities in healthcare, right? Mm -hmm. And so I feel like a lot more companies um, like Abbott, you know, like, like other companies in the space are really taking a closer look at that and so, we are just very thankful that you were on today to you know share your perspective um, because we definitely we, we we're doing we're doing more work in the space but there's definitely a lot of room to go well Dr. Ravenel you have so much good work going on and um, we'd also love to talk today about some of the work that you're doing with Abbott um regarding making sure that you know we have a really diverse patient set in different clinical trials. So if you could tell us a little bit more about that.
2: Absolutely. Uh, so we are uh, blessed to be in an incredibly diverse country here uh, in America. Uh, and I have the privilege of taking care of incredibly diverse patients. Um, and we have been able to uh, to benefit from medical uh, innovations that have really uh, been been uh, tested and vetted in clinical trials. Um, clinical trials are so important for advancing science and uh, innovation, and it's so important for uh, for the, the the people who participate in clinical trials to be representative of the end user uh, uh, of these uh, of these uh, innovations. And when we develop new medical technologies, it really is for the benefit of everyone. And so I believe it is incumbent on us to ensure that the clinical trials in which we are testing and developing these uh, innovations, that they include um, uh, patients and participants who are representative of the diverse uh, end end users in our uh, country. And so I've been working with with, uh, Abbott um, on an uh, advisory board to really think about you know how can we increase uh, diversity in clinical trial participation uh, we've known for a long time that there are many different barriers to uh, to uh, minoritized groups participating in clinical trials um, one of those is certainly uh, access um, you know often the you um, the, uh, the neighborhoods and the, the places where, where, where many uh, diverse patients live, uh, those often are not the, the, uh, the places where there are academic medical centers or other uh, uh, settings where clinical trials are, are, are uh, usually offered. And then there are a number of other barriers, including uh, medical mistrust, which we were able to talk about, uh, we, and due to uh, hist- uh, uh, historical uh, events and atrocities like the uh, Tuskegee uh, uh, syphilis study, uh, uh, and so you know, building building trust is a really important uh, improvement that we can uh, can make to improve uh, diversity in clinical in clinical trials, uh, increasing access to clinical trials. Um, among uh, minority patients and uh, participants, and then addressing some of the uh, social barriers, uh, you know, uh, in, uh, including uh, transportation, uh, in- ensuring that there is uh, childcare, uh, making sure that that we make it possible for patients to uh, to uh, participate fully in uh, clinical trials, and so uh, with uh, with uh, leadership at Abbott and with several other thought leaders across the uh, country who who think about equity in uh, clinical trials, who think specifically uh, uh, about cardiovascular disease. We uh, came together several times over the last year to really think through what are some strategies we can uh, implement so that uh, we can have more diverse representation, not just uh, in the trials that that Abbott conducts, but uh, how can we positively influence the entire landscape of diversity in uh, clinical trials? Uh, and so, uh, it's been a great pleasure uh, to work with uh, Abbott on this. And uh, you know, when we th- we we can't talk about health health equity without talking about diversity in uh, clinical trials. I'm really uh, happy. Uh, to be part of this uh, initiative, which is pushing equity forward.
0: Well, we have one final question for you and we ask all our guests, because you're here on The Morning Fix, we would love to know what you do for your Morning Fix. How do you get started each day?
2: Oh, thank you for for, for that question, uh, Julie. And so I, this is gonna sound strange to, to many people, but, my morning fix is being involved as much as i can in the chaos of getting the kids ready for school and out the door um i feel like if i if i contribute to that first part of their day and have that you know a positive interaction of of just experiencing all of the highs and lows of uh, parenthood all in those you know two first in those 2 hours of of the uh, morning uh you know it it actually gets it gets me off uh off on a good start to uh to my day um and uh then you know i often don't uh you know don't feel so bad if i have to put in a uh late night uh but uh but yes i uh i my most favorite job in in the world Um, is, is being a uh, dad and there's no uh, better way to earn your stripes than, uh, than, than trying to get four kids out the door in, in the morning before I have to go, before I have to get to work.
1: I, oh my gosh. (laughs) Yes. That is a way to earn stripes. I love it, and uh, there is nothing better than uh, uh, interacting with the children and the energy and the chaos that really uh, gets you going in the morning. So, that's
2: right. <laughs> probably,
1: probably just as good as coffee. So, that's a, absolutely, that's a, great, that's a great answer. Thank you for sharing, Doctor.
2: No problem. It's been my my pleasure to 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 be on with you, and thank you for having this uh, platform, which is just so important for, uh, for, for getting good in, in information out, out, out to the public. So thank you.
1: Oh, wonderful. Thank you. We love hearing that. We appreciate it. Well, thank you again. And thank you to everybody for listening. Um, And we hope you enjoy hearing from our amazing uh, med tech leaders uh, around the country and the world. And thank you for tuning in to the Morning Fix by 510k Cafe.